Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we look into why the price of certain produce has gone right through the roof of late and lettuce in particular, when suddenly it takes a whole lot of green to toss a green salad. And with grocery prices up across the board, we get some tips from a dietitian on how you can stretch your food budget and why frozen fruit and vegetables are a pretty good option. Cue the attempted comeback. Donald Trump announces he wants to be the 2024 Republican Party candidate for president. But after his chosen candidates bombed in recent midterms, not to mention all that happened when he lost the last election, even his own party seems to think it might be time to move on. We hit the front lines of the crisis in Canada's emergency rooms with Dr. Alan Drummond and find out why politicians need to do more to solve a dangerous combination of overcrowded hospitals and sagging staff morale. But first, a Russian-made missile killed two people in eastern Poland as Russia bombarded Ukraine today. It's not clear who fired the missile that raises the specter of the war spilling over into a NATO country and questions about how the military alliance will respond. First up, let's head to Bali, uh, where the G20 is meeting. U.S. President Joe Biden called an emergency meeting of G7 and NATO leaders in Bali uh, after ally Poland said a Russia, Russian-made missile, Russian-made missile, killed two people in the eastern part of that country right on the on the Ukrainian border. Now, late today, early tomorrow, it's obviously early Wednesday in Bali, um, President Biden came out and said that it was unlikely, given the lines of trajectory, that the missile was fired from Russia. But, quote, he said, we'll see. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, who's also there, uh, made a brief statement about it. So obviously we're uh, following up this situation very closely. Uh, We're in contact with Poland as well as with our partners. Um, My heart is with the family and loved ones of the victims and also with the people of Poland. Now, if confirmed, and it's not, we know that it was Russian-made, according to the polls, the Russian-made missile. We don't know where it was fired from. The strike would mark the first time in this war that a Russian weapon fired from Russia would have come down on a NATO country. And that's a big deal uh, because, obviously, as a military alliance with a a vow to protect, um, there are a lot of implications if that, in fact, was fired from Russia. But for the time being, it does not look like that was the case, but we need more details on that. The U.S. Defense Department spokesperson Pat Ryder says if, in fact, it was fired from Russia, the U.S. is prepared to defend its NATO ally. When it comes to our security commitments uh, and Article 5, we've been crystal clear that we will defend every inch of NATO territory. Polish government leaders are set to hold an emergency meeting due to what they're calling a crisis situation. Russia's defense ministry has, of course, denied launching strikes in that area near the Ukrainian-Polish border. Yet it did come on a day that Russia fired dozens of missiles into Ukraine, hitting civilian targets, as is often the case, as well as energy infrastructure across the country today. The lights were out in many places, including in the capital, Kiev. Well, joining me now is Alexander Lanoshka. He's an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo and author of Military Alliances in the 21st Century. Thanks so much. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me back. So what do we know? I mean, we heard some uh, a statement just in the last hour from President Biden that seemed to suggest that perhaps it wasn't fired from Russian territory, at least. But uh, what can you divine from that? So earlier this evening, the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs issued a statement to the effect that a missile of Russian manufacture was responsible for the death of two individuals in 
um, in the village uh, in eastern Poland today. And Przybywodów is the name of the village. And very recently, as you pointed out, Biden had issued a statement to the effect that, indeed, uh, it's not entirely clear whether this was something that uh, Russia had launched. And, indeed, one working hypothesis that I think is gathering more and more momentum is that what possibly could have happened is that a Ukrainian interceptor launched from an S-300 air defense system might have gone astray trying to hit a Russian cruise missile in the Lviv area. And indeed, as you pointed out as well, the Russians did launch about 100 cruise missiles all across Ukraine, activating Ukrainian air defense. And this may have just been an extremely unfortunate and very unlucky accident. But again, details are forthcoming. There's still an investigation. There's a lot we don't know. Yeah. What's been the reaction in Poland? I know you've been uh, sharing on social media a lot of what the reaction has been inside the country tonight. So a little more calmness uh, than you might think. There is a plea for patience, precisely because of what is at stake here. There are some voices who are pretty adamant that was Russian launched and perhaps that is correct, but again, the authorities are very clear that they want to take time to investigate uh, before reaching definite conclusions. There may be some partisanship involved here as well as regards to post-domestic politics, but even so, uh, the response of the authorities has been relatively measured. They have said that they are going to invoke Article 4, and that will mean an emergency meeting tomorrow uh, under NATO auspices. They will have increased the readiness of several military units. It's not clear which ones. And they're continuing to investigate uh, what indeed uh, transpired today in, in uh, Przewodów. Yeah, I know that uh, the the Baltic countries uh, were, were on social media, at least I think Estonia was, uh, speaking quite forcefully about what had happened. A lot of people had sort of jumped to the conclusion that this was, in fact, fired from Russia. Uh, but I guess you're right, given the stakes, I mean, Poland being a NATO ally, they really need to figure out exactly where this uh, projectile came from before before getting too far down the, the rhetorical rabbit hole, so to speak. Indeed. And, and to be sure, I, I don't want to necessarily be entirely trusting of the authorities. The evidence that we have publicly available is sufficiently ambiguous to allow for a reasonable disagreement about uh, the source of the munition, its trajectory and the ballistics involved. And authorities might have all sorts of incentives to try to de-escalate the situation. If it were indeed to be the case that this was a Russian missile destined for Polish territory, whether as an errant missile or not, then that will raise all sorts of uncomfortable questions about what would be the sort of response that would be appropriate the ambiguity of the evidence may very well allow decision makers to sidestep those rather complicated questions. I mean, this has clearly been something that everyone uh, in and around Ukraine, all the NATO members in and around Russia and Ukraine have been thinking about since the 24th itself was, could this spill over even accidentally? And if it did, what happens? And I, I guess right now we're watching that happen. Yeah, I would like to think that they've wargamed the situation, that they've thought about how this could happen, precisely because so much ink has been spilled about potential escalation risks and uh, accidents that might unfold, especially as 
Western militaries have stepped up the provision of assistance to Ukraine and how Poland has been very much central to those efforts. And really, given what I just described as to the Polish response, the invocation of Article 4, the increased readiness of some military units, and the plea for patience and more investigations, it does seem that they're doing things by the book. Yeah, because there was a lot of talk, and this again is on social media, so we always have to take it with a grain of salt, but there was an awful lot of talk, and you pointed this out, about Article 5 today, which of course is the, uh, is, is, you know, the, the, the article that, that incurred, that is, that is the self-defense, you know, an attack on one is atta- an attack on all. Uh, but you were mentioning that Article 4 would be the logical first step, which is meet and discuss first. That's right. I think too many people overthink uh, Article 5, insofar as that's, they think that's the only thing that a country can invoke in the event of a, a crisis like today's. Article 4 does not have the same sort of implications as Article 5 for uh, the reasons that you mentioned. Rather, what it does is for uh, a country part of that is part of NATO to call together its fellow allies to meet uh, in some sort of extraordinary session and to coordinate a policy while sharing all the intelligence and information in order to arrive at the best possible decision. So this is exactly what you would want, as a matter of fact, uh, in this sort of scenario. Alexander Lanushka is with us this half hour. He's an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. We're talking about, uh, we know that a missile, a Russian-made missile, struck um, an area in eastern Poland today near the Ukraine border, killing two people. We don't know who fired it. That is a subject of much uh, discussion tonight, uh, tomorrow, in Wednesday in Bali, where world leaders are gathered. Poland has asked for Article 4 to be invoked. That is a, an emergency meeting between NATO members. It looks like that, I believe, will happen. I'm not sure if we know exactly if that has been acceded to yet, but I believe it has. Um, it's not Article 5, by the way, which has come to the defense. An attack on one is an attack on all. Um, but it does suggest that this is a very serious incident, and we need to get to the bottom of it. Uh, President Biden said earlier that it looked unlikely that it had been fired from Russia. That does leave other options open, but it looks unlikely that it was fired from inside Russia. Um, On another matter, this came on a day, Alex, when when Russians fired 100 missiles at Ukraine, while world leaders, including the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, were in Bali, apparently discussing this. So what did you make of that? Yeah, in some ways, the events in Shavadov were very tragic, but they overshadow what has happened in Ukraine, which I think is very important precisely because it did lead to power outages affecting 10 million people, an unknown number of lives potentially lost and so forth. And I think it's important to not lose sight of that. As for the G20, I'm not sure exactly what to think of it, um, quite honestly. It was interesting to me that Russia chose to attack Ukraine today, not because the G20 was in session, but rather because tomorrow is the day when the Ukraine Defense Contact Group will be convening virtually to decide the next package of military assistance uh, for Ukraine. So the timing for me is very peculiar because that will only incite greater interest and willingness to provide that sort of military assistance. As for the G20, I just think that um, there's not really a whole lot to be done at that particular forum as regards to this for uh, as regards to this conflict. Um, so I don't think yeah. it's necessarily the most important thing. 
No, st- still attacking Ukraine while they're all meeting is is <laughs> does send us. And you're right; it, it probably does have more to do with what's happening tomorrow. Sure. But Russia's certainly thumbing its nose at other world leaders because clearly part of the whole plan in in uh, in Bali was to isolate Russia and condemn it, or at least try to get as many people on side as possible to condemn it. They haven't been so successful with China, for instance, but um, clearly the Russians were going to send a message of their own uh, today. Bear in mind that uh, Russia launched cruise missile attacks on Kyiv when the UN Secretary General himself was in Kyiv. So, again, as a matter of perspective, the fact that Russia launched this uh, attack during the G20 is par for the course, unfortunately, in this war. Yeah. What you mentioned it earlier because there has been a lot of talk tonight that this attack, specifically depending on what we find out about the missile that struck inside Poland, that this could lead uh, other nations, certainly the Ukrainians are already calling for it, that this could lead uh, allies to provide some of the air defenses that Ukraine has been asking for for so long. Well, if nothing else, what this incident today shows is that you cannot fully insulate the Ukrainian air defense problem from NATO's own airspace, that there there will be this sort of uh, probability of accidents like what we saw today, to the extent that this was indeed an accident, because, of course, we don't know truly what had happened. And so that will galvanize, I would like to think at least, greater interest to provide Ukraine with more advanced air defense systems where these sorts of misfires or errant interceptors are less likely to be um, taking place. Well, Alexander Lanushka, as always, we'll be following this to see exactly uh, what unfolds in the next 24 hours. But we've been talking about this day coming for quite a while, the day where NATO was going to have to contend with something happening on a member's soil. And I guess today is the day. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you again for having me. As I was at the grocery store today just to have a look, and uh, there was a noticeable bald spot at the grocery store today. No lettuce, not a head, not not one. Uh, just as well, because apparently the prices you'd be paying for them are alarming enough. Uh, I've been reading, for example, that a pack of romaine, those three packs of romaine, is now double, <clears throat> excuse me, the $5 you would have paid a year ago. So what's happening? Uh, there's a bit of a perfect storm going on. Lettuce, a lot of it comes from the same place, uh, which is the salad bowl of America. Or the salad bowl of the world, I think they call it, although I'm sure that it might be a bit myopic. But it's if you remember your John Steinbeck novels, it's Salinas. It's that whole area south of San Francisco or south of San Jose as you head down the, the coast towards um, towards San Luis Obispo and into into LA. That's that area where all lots of vegetables are growing. So apparently there's been some problems there. It's been too hot, but it's having a huge impact across the industry. It's not the only thing that's been strange in the uh, with supply chains and produce in the past while. But joining me now is Mark Van Schellitz. He's a vice president, Western Canada, with Restaurants Canada. Mark, thanks so much for your time. Good evening, Ben. Pleasure to be here. So tell me about this lettuce thing, because it kind of, I mean, I started seeing it on social media last week, and all of a sudden, lettuce seems to have vanished from the uh, vanished from the, the menu, so to speak. Yeah, and not only is there a shortage, <laughs> but if you can get it, uh, our members are telling us that it's four times the 
the initial cost, which is pretty cost prohibitive if you can get it. And and as you alluded to in your comments, I mean, by far the largest lettuce producer is California, and they're experiencing you know extreme weather drought and uh, apparently there was also a spot virus uh, that was thriving in you know, on lettuce which uh, uh, which led to a lot of declining crops as well so it's just one more uh, you know uh, supply chain issue that we've got to deal with as you know we've, we're dealing with uh, huge increases in food costs right across the board uh, you know we've got proteins and double digit increases from beef seafood chicken uh, cooking oil is up now 40 percent uh, even more if you're talking about some of the more higher quality, longer lasting oil. And then, of course, besides the food cost increases, we're also dealing with labor cost increases, insurance cost increase, leasing cost increases. So uh, it's, it's a tough time out there for restaurants. But when it comes back to the lettuce, uh, certainly chefs are pretty creative and resilient. And I don't think that should deter any of your listener, listeners from uh, enjoying a meal at their favorite restaurants because they're going to use substitutes. Uh, you know, they're going to use kale and, and, and other types of ingredients that can get for those sort of, uh, for you know, those replacements. Spinach is another one. Uh, so so we're going to get through this. Like, you know, we're, we're pretty creative and resilient, and, and so are our chefs, and uh, uh, we'll find a way to do this. Yeah, I was reading, reading one produce supplier in Toronto saying that uh, that uh, speaking of the guy who whoever had won the Powerball in California that they could buy themselves a Caesar salad. That was his that was his take on on the whole thing. But how does it work then? I mean, when it, when something gets that expensive, how quickly um, do restaurants decide you just can't keep it in stock? There's no point. I mean, because I don't really remember it happening all that often, especially especially not with something as ubiquitous as lettuce, which you see just about from your local subway to your highest end restaurant, there's lettuce on the menu somewhere, right? Yeah, no no question. And, you know, but we've been dealing with this for the last year, actually, where you've had restaurants having to, to streamline their menus and, and use different products and, and be creative with some of the uh, new menu items where they're using some of the lower cost ingredients rather than those those ingredients that have gone up. Uh, considerably, and you've got to remember the industry is facing like a 30% increase in cost, and we're still struggling to get back our pre-pandemic sales numbers. So, uh, so it's quite a challenge out there. And as you know, this year menu inflation was about 7.8%. So they're certainly not passing on all those costs to the consumers. And in 2023, we're expecting menu prices to go up uh, by another 6%, which is pretty much in track with with uh, inflation generally. Yeah, I was surprised to read that um, restaurant prices hadn't aren't climbing as quickly as grocery prices because you'd think um, that it might be the opposite. But instead, restaurant prices are down around, as you mentioned, sort of 7% hikes, whereas grocery prices have been up around 11 and 12%. How is that? Um, how, how do you get by? How do the margins work when you're trying to do that? Well, a couple of issues. There is a, a bigger increase at the grocery store because that's a retail product. And, of course, we buy our food wholesale, so we get a little bit of a break there. But, uh, uh, you know, there's a really delicate balancing act that every restaurant has to do where, yes, you have to obviously take some of those costs through through your menu prices, but you can't raise them that high or you risk losing, you know, a lot of your value-conscious uh, guests. So uh, so they're very reluctant to do that. And, uh 
You know, the other problem that we've got, though, is, you know, uh, sales and, and costs are one thing. But then, of course, a lot of our restaurants took on, you know, 85% of them took on a whole bunch of debt during the pandemic. And, and now many of them are concerned, especially when you can factor in rising interest rates. Uh, many of them are concerned that they're not going to be able to pay back their, their SIBA loans and, and other debt that they're taking with the pandemic. And, and that's why we still got 50% of the industry that's not profitable at all. Uh, 29% are still losing money. 22% are just barely breaking even. So uh, it, it's tough out there, especially when you've got debt. And, and now the other challenge on the horizon we have is, you know, with rising interest rates and potentially a looming recession, you know, the restaurants are very concerned because when disposable income shrinks, we're obviously the first industry that gets impacted by that. So uh, it's a big struggle out there for restaurants to survive. But, uh, you know, they're, they've shown their creativity and their resilience and they'll get through this challenge as well. Yeah, where are you seeing it? Because I realize what happens sometimes is that lower end is sort of more inexpensive places do okay because people are looking for value. Higher end places do okay because people know that it's it's special occasion and you're going to spend more money than you know you're you're willing to take that bite for a special occasion. I feel like it's it's sort of the middling places, the places that might seem a bit expensive for what you're getting because they used to be value and they're now more expensive than you expect. I, I wonder if that's where some of the real struggles might be in that kind of mid range. Yeah, then you're absolutely correct. And then certainly that's where the, the pain point is, where you're still a full service restaurant, but uh, you're, you're, you're catering to that value conscious guest. And, and certainly the pressure is highest on them, to your point. If you're a really high end restaurant, uh, you know, you've got people that can pay the higher prices. Uh, and then on the QSR side, you know, the, 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 the average uh, check is, is so small that you don't really notice it as much. But uh, uh, I would agree with you that that certainly those family style or those value conscious table service restaurants and, and a lot of those independent restaurants fall in that category uh, are, are finding it uh, it very challenging times out there right now, especially when when many of them, uh, you know, don't have enough labor with uh with our situation right now with labor shortages, they can only operate at about 80% capacity. So they've had to close certain hours or, or certain sections of the restaurant as well. And when you've got all this debt at the same time of, of trying to generate uh, your income to be able to pay that back and to, to get into profitability, it's, it's a real challenge out there for restaurants if, uh, if they can't operate at full capacity either. And we're seeing a lot of managerial and, and small owners just getting burnt out because uh, they're, they're working 24-7 all the time, and there's only so much, so, so long you can do that. Yeah. And of course, it's those restaurants that when they go, you know, those are the ones you really miss, right? Those are sort of your, your go-to neighborhood restaurants and so forth that, uh, that, that you wind up eating at more than other places. Generally, if you, if, I mean, we don't eat out a ton, but those are the places that really form the backbone of most neighborhood rest, most neighborhoods when it comes to the restaurants, right? Absolutely. Absolutely correct. So, uh, you know, it's certainly not an easy time out there. And, and the most difficult thing, you know, the amount of stories that I heard during the pandemic, and, and obviously we lost a lot of restaurants during that time, um, you know, those that, uh, that, went and got through it now they're saying okay just when you think they're turning the corner you have all these headwinds and all these challenges that they have to overcome on top of it all so uh not an easy business but uh you know most restaurateurs are pretty passionate about food and people and uh uh, they're going to keep on you know doing what they can to, to stay in business as long as they can Mark Von Chelitz is with us this half hour. He's Vice President, Western Canada for Restaurants Canada. We started talking uh, talking about the high cost of lettuce. Um, it has been, I mean, there was no lettuce at the grocery store today when I went, and I gather that restaurants are 
quickly pulling it off the menu because supplies are tight, prices are high, and it's it too shall pass. Of course, like all uh, issues of this kind, it will it will alter itself sooner than later. But in the meantime, yeah, you can forget about that Caesar salad, I think, for the time being, uh, or getting lettuce on your sandwich <laughs> or your burger, for that matter. I think that's really what it's been happening. We've also been talking about just restaurants, you know, emerging from the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, and the challenges that they continue to face with inflation, uh, specifically food costs, labor shortages, uh, inflate, you know, uh, interest rates on money borrowed, money owed, and so forth. We've talked a bit about the bad stuff, Mark. There must be some signs of hope out there. And you mentioned the resilience, but you know, there must be some signs of hope out there for the industry as we're sort of emerging a little bit and people are going out again. Yeah, no question. And I really appreciate you asking the question because there is a lot of good signs out there as well. And and first and foremost, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of our restaurateurs were worried uh, that they would actually get their customers back into their uh, restaurants. And of course, during the pandemic, some of the transition that happened is uh, a lot more flexibility as far as patio dining and a lot of restaurants opening up patios making them look good. It's part of the street scene in every community now. Uh, you know, certainly in, in my experience, I think that is one of the positive things that came out of it. But most importantly, I think, is just the, uh, uh, yes, there was some pent-up demand for the pandemic and everything, but our guests have certainly come out and supported us. And they have a very, very positive view of the industry. There was just an Angus Reid survey where 74% uh, of Canadians uh, have a very positive attitude towards restaurant employees, very uh, positive on that front. And, of course, um, you know, many of them, despite the challenges that are out there, uh, the vast majority of, of restaurants uh, or of customers are saying that restaurants are still providing pretty good value for money, even with the menu inflation uh, that, of course, they've, they've had to undertake take over the last year so so those are really some some good news stories and also you know one of the things that one of the trends from the pandemic that has really been a lifeline for restaurants is is that takeout and delivery a lot of them had no idea how to do this beforehand and now projected to go forward with, with full service restaurants about 30 to 40 percent of the revenue is going to still come from takeout and delivery so so that's certainly a new challenge uh, channel of, of sales that uh, is really helping the resilience of the industry and and uh, just very proud of the whole industry and how they were managed to pivot and and become very resilient and creative to to overcome a lot of these challenges we've been talking about. How is it though? Because I notice, of course, um, delivery companies are doing a lot of the delivering. Uh, how is that working out for restaurants when it comes? You know, if I'm if I'm ordering from you know any number of companies that will provide me that service, is that still good business for restaurants? Well, it is in the sense that it it, it provides that cash flow. It's not very profitable right. usually, but again. A lot of restaurants have, have adjusted what they're doing, so they're making sure that what they do for takeout is really takeout friendly, if you know what I mean. It doesn't get spoiled and grounds it, uh, that type of thing. So they've learned a lot from the pandemic. But, of course, the, the, the third-party delivery fees are still a big issue. Uh, those can range, you know, 20 to 30% for most restaurants. And, and here in British Columbia, where I'm situated, they just passed legislation to cap those fees at 20%. So at least that gives our members some cost stability going forward on, on one of their input costs, and those are those delivery fee, uh, fees. But uh, uh, so there are still some really positive uh, signs out there, and uh, uh, really, really impressed to see Canadians coming back to support the industry the way they have. Well, Mark, uh, let us know when you let us is back on the menu. We'll keep an eye out at the grocery store. I guess that'll tell us, right? Once we see it stocked again, we'll probably see it in restaurants again. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Uh, my pleasure, Ben.
How can you make your food budget stretch just a little more? How could you? It's a good question. I wanted to know. Abby Sharp knows. She's a dietitian and CEO of Abby's Kitchen in Toronto, and she joins us now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. So these are, I mean, I was at the grocery store uh, yesterday uh, before before the show, and I'm like, wow, there's not much here, and uh, nothing's on sale. Uh, it, it, you know, we're heading into winter in Canada, Canada, always a tough time when it comes to groceries. Uh, what are you seeing out there? Is it as bad as I'm, bad as I'm pointing out? <laughs> Unfortunately, I agree. It's been rough. It's been slim pickings out there, especially for some of the traditionally uh, more nutritious foods that we look for, like the lettuces and things like that. So I know people are definitely struggling to put a healthy, balanced meal on the table. So what what can one do? I mean, there are ways, uh, certainly, I guess, waste not, want not was perhaps at the top of the list. Yeah, I mean, it's a really great plan to always kind of do some meal planning and meal prep whenever possible. So, you know, I see meal planning and meal prep as a way to kind of take the guesswork out of dinner on some of those really hectic evenings. So it just makes you more likely to eat what you actually have on hand rather than kind of making some of those impulse decisions uh, later on to order in or to kind of like, you know, put something together that maybe ends up costing you a lot more. So if you don't, I find if we don't have a specific plan for ingredients that we pick up at the store, we're much more likely to let them kind of like sit in the fridge and rot before they actually get used. So, you know, when it comes to meal planning and meal prep, a lot of people think of it as just kind of like making one meal and then having to portion it out into Tupperware for the whole week. I don't think that that's realistic for a lot of people because we all get bored of eating the same thing every single day, especially if you've got a family to feed who have, you know, different needs and likes. So what I like to recommend people do is to make big batches of meal components. So like I make a big batch of, of rice and I make a big batch of, you know, uh, chicken breast and roasted vegetables and then mix and match each week to make different meals so that you're not stuck in that rut with the same meal every day. Yeah, I guess that can be the off-putting part of it is sort of thinking I'm going to be eating a stew for the next six nights, right? That's the... That's yeah, the... nobody... And, and that's the thing. And then once you have that that idea in your head, you're more likely to just say, oh, well, I'm sick of stew. I'm going to just order in on Uber Eats. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, storage, though. I mean, I, I think a lot of us who live in smaller places struggle a bit with storage space. I mean, I... We have a small fridge. We have a small freezer, and there's just not a lot of room for stuff. What do you recommend to people? I guess finding ways to store things is probably the most important thing here. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I think that's why I think it's uh, a much more realistic idea to put together those meal components so that, you know, you've got all your chicken in one container rather than having to have five containers or six containers in the fridge for each meal or multiple containers, kind of, if you've got multiple people in the house that you're trying to feed. Um, but then when it comes to just like making those meals, you know, on the fly, very quickly, very efficiently, you do want to focus on some of those those more inexpensive ingredients that you're able to source. So rather than focusing on meat and poultry, which we know is going to be more expensive, I do recommend choosing plant-based proteins more often. So, you know, the pulses, legumes, um, you know, beans, whether it's dried or canned, are always going to be a lot more cost-effective than buying poultry, meat, or fish. And if you do want to opt for for meat, then I do recommend buying whole cuts. 
and then doing the work yourself. So that might mean like having to take the skin off your own chicken breasts or, you know, taking the bone out or, or using cooking with the bone in rather than always buying all of the meats kind of pre-chopped into individual components. That is going to save a lot of money um, and it just takes a little bit of extra effort. Yeah, yeah. Imagine doing something because you are paying for that work to be done, right? You're paying for the convenience, of it, right? So you have a little more time. Yeah, and time is money. So I understand that that's a that's a consideration for a lot of folks too. Um, but in terms of saving money at the grocery store, I think that's a really good tip. And then when the vegetables come into play, because again, we're seeing outrageous prices for things like lettuce right now, right. and for folks who you know we're 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 going to be or trying to eat more healthy and get in those greens and get all those vegetables. I understand that that's a concern. We're not going to have our salad, right? So the good news is is that there are so many other alternatives that are just as nutritious easy to get in those nutrients, but going to cost a lot less. So uh, frozen vegetables and frozen produce in general, frozen fruit, frozen berries, really great cost-effective option. And they're also, especially in the case of frozen berries, a lot more nutritious because they're peak, They're packed at the peak of perfection. Right. Why did they get such a bad rap when I was growing up, sort of frozen stuff? Because I, I gather know. it's, yeah, I gather it's not that bad. No, it's actually in a lot of cases even more nutritious because you're not paying for it to be shipped from California where it's being picked, it's underripe, it has to be, you know, transported a long, a long way. And by the time it gets to you, it doesn't even taste that good. So you're better off buying frozen berries, for example, throwing them into a smoothie when we know that those berries were picked in, you know, July, and therefore they are maintaining that actual flavor and that nutrition a lot more. And the same goes for for vegetables and greens. You can buy frozen spinach or frozen kale, and it's such an easy way to just throw a handful of that into a smoothie or throw it into scrambled eggs or um, if you're making like an omelet. Um, I also love to throw it into like um, a risotto or a pasta dish just to kind of amp up the vegetable factor and the, and the, get it a little extra fiber in there. And you're going to you know save so much money getting in your veg that way. Right. I guess it makes sense too, because you can just take out what you want to use and put the rest back in the freezer, right? <laughs> Obviously. Exactly. And that's one of the great things about frozen and canned pro- products as well is that, you know, there is no waste because you're you're not having to have something fresh that you know is only going to last, let's say, you know, a couple days. So if you do see something on sale, for example, and you do have storage, whether it's a pantry for canned goods or a freezer, or this, you know, a uh, deep freezer for frozen goods, then you can buy a little bit extra knowing that it's going to keep for the next few months so that you can kind of uh, bust it out throughout the next uh, next few weeks for meals and snacks. Yeah, in our case with the freezers, just getting rid of some of the stuff that we'll never eat, like the bag with the two yeah. pierog- pierogies left in it that's been yeah. in there for six months, right? Um, exactly. It, it is odd, though, that we have this, I mean, have this sort of fetish with fresh right? Um, because it we, really we, is. we live in a cold country, right? So it's, it's, it's not, we're not going to get fresh vegetables, uh, or at least really good fresh vegetables and fruit through the whole year. Uh, why do you think that is? I mean, I, I guess you must get this question uh, now and then about our frozen vegetables or canned things as good for you. Yeah. And I think it just comes down to the fact that the term, the word fresh has a bit of a health halo. It, it, it has a connotation of naturalness and, and wholesomeness. And so people will always associate fresh foods with being better for you. And I think part of the reason for that is that, it, you know, if we juxtapose the concept of fresh with, let's say, processed, we know that 
ultra processed foods are potentially less health healthy because they often have more sugar, more salt, more saturated fats or trans fats. So I think that that's probably where it gets some of its um, bad reputation. But the, re the, the reality is, is that those frozen fruits and vegetables, frozen foods today are just as nutritious, if not more nutritious than fresh, depending on time of year. And uh, canned goods as well have come a really long way where you can get canned beans, for example, and canned tomatoes, for example, with no sugar or no salt added. It's just exactly the, you know, the beans that you love, but they're cooked for you. So it's so much more convenient. And they're just as good as, you know, cooking them yourself. So I think that um, we really need to do a lot of re-education to kind of help get people back on back on board with with frozen and canned goods. Yeah, because food waste is such a big issue as well, as you were pointing out earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said, the, the frozen just really does have that edge of, of having that longer, longer shelf life, so to speak. When it comes to different um, household sizes, that's always a challenge too. I mean, uh, if you're if you're just a couple, or you're on your own, uh, or you have a family to feed, uh, I mean, you must look at the price of food differently, right? Because there are things you simply, if you're not feeding enough people, it simply makes no sense to buy certain things, right? It's um, they're just too expensive. How, how should you approach that with in terms of trying to figure out exactly what you should be buying these days with the cost of food so high? Yeah, so I always say variety is the spice of life. And so when we are dealing with uh, a situation where food is very expensive, I think one of the main issues that people face is just not really getting a lot of variety because especially if they are just one or two people, like you said, it doesn't make sense to buy you know, six different types of fruits and vegetables each week when, you know, you can't actually get through all of them necessarily if you're just one person. So what I always recommend is to try to switch it up week to week. You know, if you're going to buy eggplant and zucchini on one week, then next week, maybe you're going to do green beans and carrots. Um, and that way you're getting in a wide variety of different foods. You're not getting bored. You're kind of switching up the nutrients that you're getting because nutrition is a long game. So we don't need to get every single micronutrient every single day. We just want to look at it over time and ensure that we're getting a nice variety of, of different micronutrients and antioxidants to kind of get the, the best bang for our buck. And I imagine one of the other things that we do a lot is buy things you think you should be eating, but you don't, right? You, you buy yeah. something like, like, oh, I should really be eating kale, but I'm not going to. So you just sit there. Yeah. It's like an experiment in your fridge. You watch it wilt, right? Exactly. I always say healthy food is only healthy if you actually eat it. So, yeah. you know, especially if you've got, if you've got kids, like, be realistic, especially when, you know, budgets are tight. Now might not be the time to kind of like do a 180 on your diet and just like, you know, clear out everything that you are used to eating and enjoy eating and start kind of introducing a whole bunch of new new food. So start slow. If you're unsure if you like something or if you're going to like something, your family's going to like something, maybe, maybe get it when it's on sale or if you can find it at a farmer's market or when it is in season and therefore it is cheaper and test it out, test the waters and then incorporate more often, especially if it, if it is a higher ticket item. Well, Abby Sharp, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your advice tonight. Thank you so much.
it's official. This is not a November surprise by any stretch of the imagination, since he pretty much telegraphed it in Pennsylvania last week. Donald Trump is indeed running to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. He made the announcement tonight at his Florida residence, Mar-a-Lago. It was a long speech. I only got to watch about the first 20 minutes of it, uh, but it did stretch on for quite a while. It was not a rally. Keep in mind, he was in the somewhat more uh, subdued confines of Mar-a-Lago. Um, again, he formally launched his bid today. The deal is, um, well, does the party want him there? Here's what Donald Trump had to say. But we always have known that this was not the end. It was only the beginning of our fight to rescue the American dream. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. There you go. Make America great again, again. Um, it was not a surprise. The timing of it may have been somewhat surprising because he had been discouraged from doing it last week before the midterms. Apparently, he was being discouraged from doing it tonight because of a fairly poor showing in the midterms, specifically by candidates that he had handpicked or endorsed. And there was those within, and there's still a runoff to be had, although it won't make a huge, it won't make any difference really in the Senate, but there is still a runoff to be, to be fought out in Georgia uh, on December the 6th. So there was some thought that maybe he should, this was supposed to be an announcement in the glory of a red wave and it didn't happen. So he sort of had to stand out there and, um, make his announcement tonight in a somewhat different or much different circumstance than perhaps he would have liked. So how did he do it? Was it grievance filled? Did he talk about 2020 and the results or was it more forward looking to 2024? Well, at least uh, for the first part that I heard, it was in fact uh, not grievance filled. It was uh, uh, Donald Trump rarely sticking to the prompter. Uh, Stephen Shear joins us now, Shire rather joins us now. He's a retired political science professor from Carleton College in Minnesota. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Professor Shire. Yes, it's Carleton College, not Carleton University in Ottawa. Right. Yes, I almost, uh, my mom taught at Carleton University in Ottawa, so I almost got that confused. So what did you make of that tonight? I watched a bit of it. It was sort of vintage, uh, not Donald Trump. He was sort of, he looked like he was being confined by that prompter, but he seems to have stuck to it. What did you make of the announcement? Well, I think you're right about the first half of the speech, but keep in mind, the speech went over an hour. And he became more self-indulgent, and uh, later on in the speech, he got off the text, talked, him, talked about being a victim, even brought up the 2020 election a bit. Uh, and by the way, you know, I was watching several American news networks, CNN and Fox, and uh, they cut away from the speech after the first half hour and only intermittently returned to it. So they apparently thought it was less newsworthy in the second half. Uh, so yeah. the first half, I thought, was exactly as you described it. But I do think that uh, <laughs> that he did get off script, as he is prone to do, as you know. And uh, we can expect more of that uh, over the long campaign that is ahead of us. Yes, it's, it seems remarkable, but we have another two years of this uh, to think about. So given the results in the midterms, and I know there's been a lot made about um, you know, Republicans blaming Trump to some extent for a poor showing and what should have been a bit of a cakewalk given the circumstances, at least historically speaking. Uh, yeah. When you look at the results, how much damage do you think they it really did to his chances in 2024? 
Well, I th- there's a lot of coverage in the American political press of how these really high-profile candidates that he sponsored for governor and senator did poorly, and uh, most of them lost their elections. And, and often they were seen as favorites for election, but nevertheless lost. And this is, I think, reflecting bad on Trump right now, because if you look historically at Trump's record now, he won in 2016, but then 2018, 2020, and now 2022, with him as the leading figure of the party, have not really been good elections for the Republican Party. And I think that is a real problem for Trump going forward to 2024. Yeah, one would think so. Although one, if you look at the at the landscape, and certainly Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor who won handedly the other night, his name pops up a lot. But you look at what it takes to win the Republican primary, and it's hard to, or the Republican candidacy rather, it's hard to see anybody right now who has the kind of horsepower to win a crowded race that Donald That's Trump true. does. The key is how crowded it is and how long it remains crowded. But you also have to look at the nomination contest as a series of discrete events in separate states. Uh, It begins with the Iowa caucuses. But remember, in 2016, Trump did not win the Iowa caucuses. Then it goes to New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is not a Trump state. His, His preferred Senate candidate lost by 10 points. And the governor of New Hampshire is an avowed political enemy of Trump, even though he's a Republican. So uh, and then you go to South Carolina and so forth. And so Trump could have rough early sledding in these races. Now, it's true he probably has about 30 percent hardcore support amongst the Republican activists and uh, participants in the nomination process. But whether he can grow beyond that and get to 50 percent, uh, remains to be seen. It's an open question, I think. Yeah, I mean, just for his purpose, I mean, we, I understand why he would want to run again. A lot was being made tonight about the idea that this is really to avoid. There was a few reasons for the timing. One was hopefully to ride the the red wave, which didn't happen, but also to neuter um, Ron DeSantis a little bit, who is, you know, obviously sort of enjoying some a moment in the spotlight. What did you make of the timing tonight? Because I gather he was told repeatedly, wait, just wait, wait till the wait till January, wait till the the uh, runoff in the Senate runoff in Georgia is done. Wait till everyone's sort of settled on these on the results of the midterms, then announce. Yes, well, I think um, I an, in, in an interview on Cable News Network tonight, Nick Mulvaney, his uh, Trump's former acting chief of staff, made the point that the timing is a mistake. But Trump was sort of locked into it by announcing a week before and before the results of the election that he would be announcing on on this day. So he was sort of locked into this. And it is a very awkward moment for him, given what happened in the election with his handpicked candidates. And also given the fact, as you mentioned, that there's a very important runoff in Georgia that Republicans are trying to focus on. And many Republicans may see the, uh, his announcement as a distraction and a nil time one. We got a bit of an, uh, a hint as to what uh, grievances aside, relitigating the 2020 election aside, the storming of the Capitol, the attempt to overthrow the election, all the things that Donald Trump doesn't want to talk about. We got a little bit of an idea of where he's going, though. 
uh, in this campaign if he can stick to his messaging, which is essentially to paint America as, you know, sort of, uh, what was the exact term he used? Uh, Blood-soaked cities, cesspools of violent crime. Now, I was just in Seattle, and I can tell you that that certainly wasn't the case. But this seems to be the theme, right? That America is being laughed at, America is being, America is falling apart. Do you think, do you think, will that resonate? Well, uh, I think Trump is only capable of hyperbole. (laughs) you know describing himself or his opponents i don't think he's capable of much nuance and so i think you can expect more of this even though uh and you know it is persuasive amongst his true believers but uh one of trump's real problems and this has been mentioned uh in a lot of post 2022 election analyses is that he is really toxic with political independence and loosely affiliated people who are loosely affiliated partisans. They've sort of given up on him. And when you add that tendency towards exaggeration, hyperbole, and occasional falsehoods uh, to the fact that he has established a reputation with key swing voters that is not positive, uh, it's difficult to see how he actually resumes residency in the White House in 2024. And that's saying that two years out. Of course, who knows what will happen in the next two years. Indeed, it's a long time in politics, although you would think that there is no better, there is no better motivator for people who, no better vote getter for the Democrats than Donald, than Donald Trump these days. Right. Well, actually, um, I think one thing that Trump is doing is dividing his party, but uniting the Democrats. Right. <laughs> you yeah, know, well, they exactly. are united in in their in their uh, hatred of Donald Trump. And now Republicans are internally divided about Trump. And 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 he is dividing Republicans internally by attacking Ron DeSantis and Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. So, uh uh, I'm, I don't see how this formula really works well for Trump or the Republican Party right now. Donald Trump announced uh, his uh, intention to uh, seek the nomination for the 2024 Republican uh, presidential candidacy. Uh, he did that tonight at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. It was a at least the first 20 minutes at all the networks cut away was a pretty disciplined speech by his his standards, it, it went off the rails a bit afterwards. Uh, Stephen Shire is with us this half hour. He's a retired political science professor from Carleton College in Minnesota. We've been talking about, um, well, what exactly this all means. Two years of, of this, of uh, Donald Trump sort of back in the spotlight to some extent. We'll see that how, how that works. What do you think this means for the Democrats? Because uh, Joe Biden was seemed quite coy about his intentions to run again uh, the other night after the Democrats did relatively or better than expected in the midterms. Does a Donald Trump candidacy make it more likely that Joe Biden will be back too? That is going to be uh, that, that that is a that is um, yeah that that isn't a youth movement. Well, reports from the White House suggest that uh, Biden is really motivated by a Trump candidacy to want to run for re-election. And uh, actually, I think the results of this midterm, which didn't produce the red wave, as so many had predicted, uh, actually encouraged Biden to run for reelection with Harris as his running mate. Uh, so it's quite possible if, you know, the GOP does nominate Trump, that we could have 2020 all over again. Although by then, let's see, Trump will be 78 and Biden will be 82, 81. That's right. I think. 
Yeah, he which just uh, he we're in it. record territory there. Uh, we've never had two party nominees so old. <laughs> it is, but it puts the Democrats in a bit of a spot as well because they won't know who the Republican nominee nominee is for a while, and it may be too late at that point to change gears if it is in fact Donald Trump. That's right. But, uh, you, you know, I think a lot of Republicans now are hoping that a young, uh, younger candidate like Ron DeSantis could get the nomination and match up against the octogenarian uh, Biden uh, to the Republicans advantage. We'll see if that can happen. What, what do you make of, I mean, Ron DeSantis is the man of the moment. There have been many of them over the years, you know, the, the candidate of the moment who sort of rides in in, in this, rides in in a blaze of glory and then, and then quickly fades away. Do you think he has what it takes to, uh, to survive well, uh, what is always uh, a grueling process? I think uh, he's serious about it. Uh, he spent the last two years raising almost $200 million that was deployed in various ways to produce this huge victory that he had in Florida. Uh, he managed to uh, um, uh, uh, improve uh, the Republican uh, get-out-the-vote effort and really dominate elections in Florida. And uh, I think if he gets in and decides to run for president, he will be a very serious candidate and a very formidable one. Uh, What he is planning to do now, according to reports, uh, is basically ignore Donald Trump and let Donald Trump go off and do his thing with all his rallies and so forth, uh, try and develop a good governing record in Florida and make a a final decision, you know, several months from now about whether to run for president. But he is seriously considering running for president. And on back to uh, to wind up on on Donald Trump, does this keep uh, keep keep the law off his back for a while? This this announcement tonight, because that was a big consideration. Uh, one would think. Well, uh, the law, you know, there are at least four major investigations going on in New York, in D.C., in Georgia that involve Trump and may require him to testify. Uh, There may be federal charges related to the use of government documents that could be forthcoming. Uh, All this really complicates his candidacy. Um, It could redound to his benefit if he's seen as a victim by enough Republicans. On the other hand, if he gets in serious legal trouble, that could also compromise him with other Republicans. There are so many variables here that are very hard to decipher because we are really in uncharted waters here. We've never had a former president run after a loss like this. We've never had a former president and a major candidate announced so early for president. And we have no idea what to expect uh, in terms of other Republican candidates coming forward, nor do we have a clear idea of how all this activity on the GOP side will influence what Democrats do. So buckle your safety belt. My heaven. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Stephen Shire, thank you so much for your time tonight. Yes. Well, a few weeks ago now, the country's emergency room doctors who've been sounding the alarm for ages now about the crisis they are facing every day in this country's ERs spoke out ahead of the federal health minister meeting with his provincial and territorial counterparts in Vancouver early last week. They had a really simple message to politicians. Patients are experiencing dangerous wait times. And it's time federal and provincial governments stopped pointing fingers at each other 
and instead came up with some solutions. It sounds like a pretty easy ask, doesn't it? But isn't it difficult when politics comes into play? Of course, the fight is over money, really. The provinces want 35% of their health care funding from Ottawa. They are getting, they say, 22% now. Um, fast forward to early last week, the health ministers met for two days in Vancouver and uh, walked away, as far as anyone could see, without settling anything. Instead, what had happened is the premiers who worked there, obviously this was, this was health ministers meeting, the premiers released a statement as talks were continuing that second day, uh, basically demanding the money. And the feds decided, you know what? That crosses a line. We're walking away. Jean-Yves Duclos, the federal health minister, said at the time that he'd come in good faith to address funding and staffing changes in the country's healthcare system and that the premiers had interfered in the process. Premiers are forcing my colleagues to speak only of one thing and one thing only, money. All that premiers keep saying is that they want an unconditional increase in the Canada health transfer sent to their finance ministers. In other words, money, no strings attached. I don't think that's exactly what every premier is asking for, but that's how the feds read it uh, when that statement came out. BC's health minister, Adrian Dix, who was hosting, had this to say. Fair enough. They didn't uh, like that the premiers reiterated their position on the Canada health transfer. That's entirely fair of the federal government to do and their expression, but I think it's disappointing. I'm not sure it sends the best message. This all comes as ER doctors, as I mentioned, were watching with certain expectations, perhaps not many. They included Dr. Alan Drummond. He's an ER physician at the Great War Memorial Hospital in Perth, Ontario, which is near Ottawa. He's also a longtime co-chair of the Public Affairs of Public Affairs uh, for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, so the nationwide body. And he's speaking out. He's just written a cover story for the December edition of McLean's magazine. It is called State of Emergency Inside Canada's ER Crisis. It is a personal and poignant look at what's going on on the front lines in an ER that could be just about any ER across this land. Dr. Drummond, thanks again for your time. Thank you for having me. How is it today? Uh, we're heading into winter. We're reading all over the place that ERs are really, really scrambling these days. I would imagine Perth can't be any different. Yeah, I mean, I think we're the calm before the storm. I mean, it's it's look, any emergency department in this country at any time of the year is usually busy. Uh, but, you know, we're generally quite fearful, I think, uh, when winter approaches, because we know we're going to end up with an influx, an increased influx of patients who are sick with, you know, typically with influenza. Uh, over the last two and a half years, we've been dealing with COVID. And, and much as I would like to be an optimist and assume that, you know, this is the last time we have to deal with this. You know, there's always a new variant that pops up that, you know, causes concern. And and so uh, this winter won't be any different, I suspect. What will be different, however, is that, you know, we, because of public health measures, mask wearing, whatever, immunization protocols, we really haven't seen influenza uh, for the last couple of years. And I think that's been a really great thing. But in Australia this year, which usually Southern Hemisphere precedes what happens up here, they had a particularly bad season and so the concern is you know what's going to happen if we get you know covid variant you know 9.0 uh, influenza and uh, rsv which you know typically affects children but what people need to know is that most pediatric emergency care in this country is delivered in community hospitals it's not delivered in children's hospitals so so our emergency departments potentially could be swamped by 
you know, the tridemic of, of COVID influenza and RSV. And we're coming out of this thing, uh, but we're still quite fragile in terms of our human resources uh, and our capability to deal with, uh, you know, with influx of illness. So, yeah, we're all quite worried. How is the morale? Poor. You know, when, when all of this started, you know, there were people banging pots and pans on the streets of, you know, Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal, encouraging the healthcare workers to, you know, face the beast because I don't want to be dramatic, but I don't want to understate this. When this thing started, you know, every Canadian emergency healthcare worker was looking at what was happening in Northern Italy and what was happening in New York City and seeing a body bags piling up in refrigerator trucks, but equally doctors and nurses dying. Mm -hmm. And and we knew it was going to come and it came. Uh, We got really inadequate guidance from the federal and provincial governments. We got inadequate personal protection. And so we didn't know what we were facing and none of us that came to work. And again, I don't want to be dramatic, but I'm not going to undersell this either. None of us knew when we came to work, whether we were going to get something that was going to kill us. And yet we came anyway. And we did so with enthusiasm because this is what we were trained to do. Two and a half years later, everybody's kind of, oh, COVID this, COVID's a cold, COVID's nothing, pandemic is over. Often sort of that message being sent by government in their inaction. So now COVID's not a big deal. And so and, and so no, we are no longer heroes of healthcare. We're just workers, cogs in the wheel. And and this message has been sent, you know, in varying degrees by varying governments in Ontario. Uh, it has been Bill C-124 that restricts nurses' uh, wage increases to 1%. That has been quite inflammatory. And it sent the message that, yeah, you were heroes two and a half years ago, but now you're just a, a bargaining group and, you know, we don't care so much. And that has caused a lot of nurses to reevaluate uh, their jobs and their lives and their commitment. And we are seeing people leaving in droves. And they it's really true. I mean, it's decimated our particular emergency staff. And you, even if you reverse that bill and gave them, let's say, a, a modest 2 or 3% increase in raise, they're not going to come back. They're not going to come back because crowding persists in our departments. And no, gov- no government in Canada has seriously addressed the issue of hospital crowding causing emergency department dysfunction. Nobody in Canada has until recently addressed the issue of violence in our emergency departments. And nobody's really addressed, you know, the burnout and stress that we all feel. So so a lot of nurses are saying, you know what, the hell with it. Well, we're just going to work in private industry or going to work for community health centers. I'll work eight till four. I'll be home with my kids. I won't have to work another night. I won't have to be punched out by another drunk as long as I live for better money. So uh, the morale is poor because those of us that are left are struggling to maintain the level, the quality of work we provided before. And we have lots of either new hires or agency nurses who are sort of parachuted into our department. They are not yet fully members of our team. They're just there for a temporary time frame, And they don't really fit in to the culture. They haven't learned the culture. They haven't been inculcated with the culture. And so, you know, when a critical care resuscitation comes in, they don't really know what to do in some cases. So they're more hindrance and help. Thankfully, in Perth, the ones that we've attracted have been really excellent. And so we've been very happy. But I know that that experience can't be translated to every emergency department in the country. So morale is poor. And that has an impact in terms of people leaving. It also has an impact on the degree of empathy that can be portrayed to patients, which they deserve. And so, yeah, tough times ahead. And, you know, here we are with poor morale. 
And yet here we are potentially facing another infectious disease emergency this coming winter. And as you've always correctly pointed out, um, Perth really is a microcosm, isn't it? For every other big ER across the country, big and small, I mean, you face your particular issues given your cashment and so on, but really your ER could stand in for just about any ER that I read about these days. Well, that's uh, that's the way I've always, like I, I, I have been involved in public affairs for the National Specialty Society for 20 plus years. And, uh, and so I'm very uh, sort of tuned into emergency medicine issues. And I can tell you that that analogy uh, of Perth as a microcosm has stood me well over the last several decades because it really is true that crowding occurs in big city hospitals and it occurs in small rural hospitals. Delayed waits for care happened in Sunnybrook and VGH and Montreal General and QE2 and, and it happened in Smith Falls and it happens in Red Deer. So it, it really does hold true. Dr. Alan Drummond is with us this half hour. He is an emergency room physician in Perth, Ontario. Uh, he's also the author of the cover article in this month's McLean's or December's McLean's magazine called State of Emergency Inside Canada's ER Crisis. Uh, Dr. Drummond, I'm sure we were all watching uh, last week as health ministers, uh, the federal health minister and the provincial territorial counterparts met in Vancouver trying to iron some things out. It ended in what felt like a bit of a bun fight, a political spat. What did you see? Were Were you, were you disappointed? Well, in order to be disappointed, I would have to have some expectation, <laughs> right? Uh, and 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 I didn't. You know, the Ontario Health Minister, who's been in the portfolio since June, and this is a province that has faced unprecedented number of closures of both rural and actually one city hospital because of nursing shortages, unprecedented waits for emergency care, unprecedented waits for sick, elderly, vulnerable people to be admitted from the emergency department to the floor, has gone out of her way to minimize the situation. Uh, she was asked about a crisis. She felt that it's no crisis, that use, use of that word was entirely inappropriate. Our premier has said, well, any Ontarian can get the care that they, that they need when they want it. Even in Vancouver, she was talking about the pressures faced on the healthcare system, just complete avoidance of the crisis word. So I didn't expect much, and therefore I didn't get much. There's probably savings to be had within the healthcare system if we can sort of solve some redundancies. But, you know, as our population ages, they don't necessarily get any healthier. And so they will require hospital beds. In Ontario, there has not been an increase in hospital beds uh, in our hospital sector for over 20 years, even though population has increased by 30%. So hospital beds are expensive items because it requires nurses to staff them. And healthcare budgets are, you know, pretty, uh, pretty tight. And uh, they consume a large amount of of a, of a government's budget. So I hate to say that money will solve everything, but I think that money ultimately is going to have to be, if we're going to talk about increasing bed capacity or increasing long-term care capacity or improving home care to make it some semblance of okay, then money is going to be required. But kudos to the Trudeau government for saying, yeah, not so fast, not money that can go to Ontario that can be then given in terms of a return of money for your license plate renewal or you know, tax-free gifts by the Quebec government. We want to see some fundamental structural change to the healthcare system. And what they seem to be asking for was pretty minimal in my view. And so uh, much as I want the thing to change, you know, I don't see this, I don't see this as meaningful unless we start to, you know, do a forensic audit of where we're at right now and say structurally you know where do we go forward so not money money to be sure but not money without strings attached
I should point out because you mentioned this to me in the past. Uh, you're not someone who's voted liberal often in your in your life, often either. So, yeah. pra- praise indeed. Um, you know, you built that. One of the things about the article that stood out so much to me was um, you built that ER. I mean, you helped with yeah. a lot of help, but you built that ER, and yeah. you'll no doubt be leaving it in the not too distant future. And I always wonder whether you think it's going to be better when you do than it is today. Yeah. No. Well, no. Uh, so I, I was head of the department for uh, 25, 30 years, something like that. And so you're absolutely right. I put my heart and soul uh, into this department. And a number of years ago, CBC did a review of hospitals and wait times. And, you know, we were only one of two hospitals in Canada for our hospital oversized that got an A-plus rating. So, I mean, well, we've always known it was a good department. The people who live in Perth in the catchment area I've always viewed it as actually an excellent department. They know there's a jewel in the crown here. And so, yeah, you know, the idea of entering a medical career is to leave things better than when you got here. And that was sort of, you know, that's what I was aiming for. And uh, I've been very proud of the type of service that we've delivered over the years. You know, we're good team players within the regional system and the provincial system of care. It's like my baby. And I feel like my baby is dying now. You know, having lost a child, uh, I can tell you that every right. every loss, every perceived loss, you know, increases one sense of grief. And so to me, this feels like that. It feels like I've lost, I'm losing yet another child. And it's it's quite it's quite painful to watch, you know, but people are sharing my grief. The community feels that way. The, the nurses and doctors that have worked here for years that have helped build this place feel that way. We don't want to be adequate. We don't want to be okay. We want to be excellent. And we're being deprived of that opportunity. Because you mentioned that part. It's not just numbers. It's not just how many people you see or how how little crowding there is. It's about delivering compassionate care. Because as you mentioned, when you're, when, you know, in your case, um, with your late daughter, you became a patient or at least family of a patient. So you also saw how it worked from the other side and that yep. the ability for you to provide that sort of compassionate care is really what you're, it's all about. It's not just treating people, it's treating people well. It's treating people with kindness and empathy uh, at some of the roughest moments of their lives. It's treating people with dignity and, and a sense of humanity and caring, you know, and, and it's, there's, there's just something wrong fundamentally wrong where I am placed in the situation of having to tell some uh, middle-aged woman that she that she didn't know but I now have to tell her that she has metastatic cancer that will kill her within months there's something wrong with a some stranger walking into a room with a mask and a face shield and sitting them down and saying well you're going to be dead within three months you're going to have to get your affairs in order. Like there's something wrong about that. There's something uh, to this day. I, 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 I weep when I think about what I had to do this summer. And it wasn't just one patient. There were several patients I had to have this level of discussion with. There is something wrong where I have to, you know, forgo any sense of privacy or confidentiality and discuss intensely personal matters with people in a crowded hallway because the other option is for them to wait six hours for me to find a closet for them, for me to talk to them. Like there's, some, there's something wrong with this. So beyond the actual wait times and the delays, we've got to start addressing the, the personal cost uh, to both patients and providers by this total destruction 
uh, of the fundamentals of healthcare, which is confidentiality, privacy, human dignity. And that's that's gone. It's gone by the window now. And we need to claim we need to, we need to reclaim that. Well, Dr. Alan Drummond, thank you so much for uh, bringing us inside this crisis. Uh, I, I appreciate it as always. Well, uh, uh, thank you for your for your interest. I really appreciate that. The article is called State of Emergency Inside Canada's ER Crisis by Dr. Alan Drummond. It appears in the December edition of McLean's magazine. You'll see a photo of Dr. Drummond on the cover of that edition. I highly recommend that you read it. It is a poignant, passionately written article about a crisis that is truly one that we should all be paying attention to. You know, I remember standing on the balcony. I remember people standing on balconies across this country banging their pots in tribute to healthcare workers because we knew what they were sacrificing about something. And keep in mind, as we relitigate the pandemic, because everyone talks about, oh, it wasn't so bad. Remember those early days when no one really knew what it was, how scary that was, how worried people were? All the brave people out there waving flags, talking about how it was all a hoax. They're doing that now. They weren't doing that two years ago. They were hiding in their in their houses like everybody else was because we were scared. We didn't know what this was. You know who didn't shy away from this? Healthcare workers. They went to work every day. They saved lives. They saved lives. And we owe them. And it's embarrassing that we're in a situation where they're, they feel like, someone like Dr. Drummond feels like he can't do his job anymore because the system is set up to fail. It's overcrowded. People are, you know, the stress within the environment is affects both patients and staff. And it, it just isn't, we have to do something to fix it. It can't, it can't go on like this. Keep in mind just how proud we were of healthcare workers during the pandemic, the early days of the pandemic. We owe them this. 